Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Howdy doody. Howdy doody. I've been thinking about you. Oh, It must at the moment be like the 90s all over again for you. Go on. Well, is, is Gordon Brown not bombarding you with text messages and phone calls? Go on. Well, you're off to Glastonbury, right? Yeah. And is he not trying to get on the guest list because I noticed the Arctic Monkeys are playing? You know, he never did say he was a big fan of the Arctic Monkeys. Is it fake news? He didn't quite say that. He said He said something like they'd certainly wake you up in the morning or something. It became this sort of thing about... Ah... <sighs> It's very odd, you know what I mean? Well, this is really making me reconsider the vote that I cast back then. I thought he was a real fan, a true fan of the Arctic Monkeys. Now, I've got a question for you, which is, how will you be spending the summer solstice? Dancing around the Maypole? Yes, I was thinking of going and hanging out with some druids on Alderley Edge. You look like a druid. I look like a, a, a druid waiting to happen, don't I? You know what? I was interviewed by Hugh Fernley Whittingstall yesterday for a documentary he's doing. He would make a good druid. And um, do you know what the first question he asked me was? How is your pea soup? Oh, because he gave you advice on your pea soup. He did. And what did you say? Less salty than it was before because of your advice. I would like you to make a gazpacho. I think we're into... I'm a big fan of gazpacho. You know what I made the other day, which it had a sort of floor, but I made shaksuka. Oh. Which is tomato, onions, egg. And Justine said it was very nice, but she doesn't really like eggs. <laughs> I don't like eggs. I know you wanted a certain amount of interest from me, and I wasn't able to give it to you because I'm, I'm not a big egg person. Is that because you're a vegan? No, I'm not. Ve- I'm vegetarian, but I am um, a fussy vegetarian and eggs make... Have I not t- told you about this before? No. I can eat invisible egg. So if you were to say, bake me a birthday cake, it's probably got an egg in it. No problem. If you made me a quiche, I would probably throw up on the spot. Do you have a bad childhood experience with eggs? I don't know what it is, but it's something to do with the egginess. 
Yeah, I'll tell you what is right on the uh, what's right on the line for me is uh, a creme caramel can go either way. Scrambled eggs? Oh, absolutely not. No, mm. Justine had obviously had some kind of bad experience with an egg as a child, but she does eat scrambled eggs. But it was extreme. I honestly, I I was a sort of I'm such a convert to cooking, Jeff. You're a real go to work on an egg guy. <laughs> what does that mean? Wasn't that the egg marketing board slogan? That's what. That's the content I think our listeners are here for, which is you remembering the egg marketing board slogan. Here's something that is interesting to me. I feel that when we were younger, a lot of individual foodstuffs would have their own marketing Milk board. Milk marketing board. Milk marketing board. Mushrooms. Make room for the mushrooms. Mushroom marketing board. I think you're making that up. No, they, they even had a jingle which went, make room for the mushrooms. I do vaguely remember that, but it, was, it wasn't a mushroom marketing board. I think that's made up. Well, it might have been a consortium of mushroom growers. Fungies forever. These types of organisations seem to wield less power than they once did. <laughs> I think you got the beginnings of a Who Runs Britain book there. <laughs> <laughs> the decline of the foodstuff marketing board. Yeah. Honestly, yeah. like it's just a bestseller. You don't think this could be a multi-part podcast? No, not really. Almost a bit Adam Curtis-ish about these shadowy organisations. So I, I do have something I wanted to sort of raise, which is Emma, our producer, sent me a picture. And I think it defies all of the naysayers. Because basically it's a vending machine where you can sort of turn around the rows and there is fruit there. Now, how many times have I heard from you and others it won't work, the fruit will go bad? I see an apple, I see a pear, I see a banana, I see a melon, I see salad. Any any more things on your list <laughs> that you can see? I mean, do you see any empty compartments in this vending machine. No. You know why that is? Why? No one's bought anything. People have looked at it and thought, no, nah, I'm going to go and find a real vending machine with a Twix in it. But hang on a minute. I just think your your logic is unusually um, sort of wrong. But it's an unused vending machine. I think that's like, I think you're, I think you're like clutching at straws here. How long do you think that banana has been in there? Well, okay, I don't. I'm looking at it. Okay, I can't look at a banana in a vending machine and rate how long it's been in there. Sorry, sorry, you're not the banana one. It's the other one that's the banana one, isn't it? You're the bacon sandwich one. It's so funny, honestly. Anyway, I think that's a significant moment. I think all that fruit looks like it's on the turn. Yeah, why don't you go, why don't you carry on with your anti-fruit crusade? (laughs) (laughs) That's like a really good cause to be fighting for, Jeff. I just don't want you investing your um, pension fund in um, a terrible business idea. Now, should we talk about what we're going to talk about? Yes. This week, we're talking about two of our favourite topics, citizens' assemblies and nature combined into one. Now, last autumn, three major conservation charities, the RSPB, the National Trust, and WWF UK, launched a national conversation about nature. Thousands of people got involved, and this formed the basis of the People's Assembly for Nature, a citizens' assembly of about 100 people, which came up with different solutions to tackle the nature crisis. And we're going to be hearing from Helen Meach from the RSPB, John Alexander from the New Citizenship Project, and also from Graham Roberts, who is going to tell us what it was like to take part in this Citizens' Assembly. I'm very excited, far more excited about this than the vending machine. What's your reason to be cheerful? My reason to be cheerful is that 
I went to a musical and I enjoyed it. Oh, which one? So I went to see Guys and Dolls at the Bridge Theatre, which was the immersive Guys and Dolls. And I would strongly yes. recommend it. I was in the mosh pit and it's just an absolutely amazing production and an absolutely amazing experience to be sort of in amongst the actors. It's just, honestly, it's absolutely brilliant. I, I cannot recommend it highly enough. Do any of them speak to you in character? No, Phew. but something happened. and The immediate thought I had was, Jeff is going to love this. So as I arrived on the stage, I was feeling a little peckish and I saw these pretzels, which were obviously not like to sell, but, you know, for the thing. I was thinking, oh, I'd quite like one of those pretzels, but I wasn't going to sort of take one of the props. But then... One of the actors, about half half an hour in, walks off the stage and starts offering pretzels to the members of the audience, and he and he offered it to two members of the audience, both of whom said no, obviously feeling a little bashful, and then he offered it to me. So I said yes to the pretzel, and jolly nice it was too. Now you might think that with my record, eating in the public place is a bit dangerous, but. It was a jolly nice pretzel. So there you go. And then I offered it to the lady who'd said no to the pretzel before me, and she also had some of the pretzel, which I thought was a kind of gallant move. Why Why were you trying to force a pretzel on a woman who'd already said no? Well, she quite liked it. She was like, oh, I'll go on, I'll taste it. And then she had it. Oh, uh, that's something seems fishy to me about this. Well, no, but she said no because it's like, you know, it's kind of slightly in the moment. You know, you're sort of like, oh, I'm being confronted by an actor offering me a pretzel. Yes, yes. I'd rather have my pretzel from Ed Miliband. Maybe. What's your reason to be cheerful? My reason to be cheerful is, um, you know this band I like, the Beatles? Yes, I've heard of them. They are releasing a new song. Really? Yes, have you not? This was big news this week. So they got back together in the 90s and they had a cassette, a ropey cassette of songs that John Lennon had recorded in his uh, apartment in New York. And it was terrible recording. There was electrical buzz on it. He was just making demos for himself. These were never intended. Well, it was a bit like me on the podcast. Very basically. much like that, yes. Yeah. Um, and, and they took two of those and uh, worked on them and made them into songs that came out in the 90s. There was a third one, but George Harrison said, this is rubbish and didn't want anything to do with it. So this is after John Lennon died, yes. they worked on it. Yeah. So yeah. now George Harrison's no longer with us. Um, Paul McCartney has said this week that AI technology now exists that can fill in the gaps in the sound quality, if you like, and replicate John Lennon's voice. So does that mean you could have like a me singing Take On Me by Aha? Yes, it does. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly what it means. Oh my gosh. If ever you're, you're busy, we could train AI to be like a robo ed on the podcast. Do you think it would work? It'd have to talk about cooking, cold water swimming. Vending machines. Vending machines. So you're saying that I'm basically superfluous. Well, let's see. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. To start the conversation, I'm delighted to say that we are joined by Helen Meach, who is Head of Movement Building at the RSPB. And you have on brand a bird outside your window, Helen. Do you want to tell the listeners? I do. I have a chiff chaff in the hedge just outside my window. So if you hear some bird noises, that's what it is. Could you please perform for us, Helen, the, the noise the chiff chaff makes? <laughs> Absolutely. It's a very well-known bird. So it's called, it's, it sort of says, chiff chaff, chiff chaff, chiff chaff. So if you hear that in the background while I'm speaking, um, that's the bird. We're going to be very disappointed if we don't hear it in the background now, Helen. I know. Can I just say that it's very impressive that being head of movement building at the RSPB means you 
you know, you know a chiff chaff from a <laughs> pigeon. I do my best. <laughs> now, Helen, we're talking today all about the people's plan for nature. Can you start by telling us a bit more about what that is and who was involved in it? Absolutely. So the People's Plan for Nature is an initiative that started last autumn. We grew out of, hopefully you're familiar with the the TV series Wild Isles that hit our screens earlier this year, fronted by Sir David Attenborough, his first ever documentary about UK nature. It showed us both the awe and wonder, the incredible nature that we have here in the UK. But it also showed us that that nature is in crisis and um, and, and it really needs our help. So what we wanted to do was to to look at what what could people do? We know that these big documentaries, they create cultural moments that that can change our culture and that can change behaviour. If you think about Blue Planet 2, that led to a massive change in the use of plastic baggies, for example. But what we wanted to do was was not just to point people to simplistic individual behaviour change actions, because we know the nature crisis is complex. So what we wanted to do was to set up a process to give people a voice in what are those changes that we need to see happen and who needs to be responsible for that change. So that when Wild Isles hit our screens, there was a really comprehensive plan in place waiting for people to take those actions. And how did you then go about getting to the people's plan for nature? We ran an innovative participatory process, which is based on something called rapid democracy, which is is kind of a hack of a decision-making model that's often used in big business. But essentially, it kind of invites people in in the right way at different parts of the process. So we started off with what we called a national conversation about the future of nature. We wanted to hear from as many different people from as many different places as possible. So we worked through a network of art centres across the UK. We worked through national trust properties. We worked through football clubs and through various other partners to to hear from as many different people around three key questions, which were, what do you love about nature? What would you miss if it disappeared? What's your vision for the future? And how is that different for now? And we also asked people to share brilliant stories of people doing things to help protect and restore nature. We heard from 30,000 people over a six-week period. We then gathered up all of that insight and fed it into the next stage of the process, which was the UK's first Citizens' Assembly about nature. So we brought together 103 people from all walks of life from across the UK. They were selected through a process, a recruitment process called Sortition. Ah, we're big fans. We're big fans. Big fans. We're not fans. We're not fans of the word, but we're fans of the concept, aren't we, Joe? It's a brilliant process that allows you to ensure that you've got a truly representative sample within a room. So we we selected so that we had um, diversity in terms of the various demographics across the UK, but we also selected that process to ensure we had a diversity of attitudes as well. There's a, there's a data set held by ONS that looks at people's sense of connection to nature. And so we use that as another metric to recruit to the process. They met over a period of four months for four weekends. They came together, they, they heard these views from the public, this this depth of insight we gathered up through that first process. They also heard from a range of expert speakers, including academics, including farmers, supermarkets, water companies, fisheries associations, a really diverse mix. And then went through a process of deliberating you know, what change is needed, who's responsible for that change and how can we make it happen. And the results of that process were published in the People's Plan for Nature earlier this year on the 23rd of March. And, and were you like um, an exam invigilator? Were you wandering around listening in on the conversations? No, we absolutely weren't. So the process was powered by, by my organisation, RSPB, alongside colleagues at WWF and National Trust. But we very much, we wanted to kind of commission the process, but then we stepped back. The process was overseen by an independent advisory group. 
So we had representatives from government departments, from businesses. We had Thomasina Myers, a range of academics, a range of NGOs, ensuring that we had a full diversity of perspectives so that the evidence that was put in front of the assembly was, was really robust, independent. And then our role was, we, we were there as observers, which was, was slightly odd. We were sort of sat at the back of the room. When we've talked about citizen assemblies and deliberative democracy in the past, it's always really inspiring that when people get access to good evidence and good information, they make wise choices and they have interesting ideas. Tell us a little bit about people's response to the information, because the nature crisis in this country is something we've talked about a lot on the podcast. But I'm guessing that there would have been people in the process who really weren't so aware of it. Yeah, absolutely, Jeff. Um, It was, I think, for for many in the room, a real shock. There definitely was a process of grief, uh, particularly the first weekend where we sort of just set out sort of the the state of nature in the UK. And it's in in a pretty poor place. And we're one of the most nature depleted countries on earth. And, And hearing that, I think, was a real shock for many in the room. We had people move to tears. There was shock. Um, there was grief. There was anger, a lot of anger, kind of a, how dare they? How dare these water companies be pouring sewage into our rivers? How dare these supermarkets be getting us to buy all these ultra processed foods and all these bog off deals when, when it's really, really damaging the, the, our life support system? But then they quickly moved through that process into a sense of agency. And I think for me, that's going to be one of the things I am I'm most proud of that we supported this process is that being just invited in and being given the space to think about the issues, as you say, people do come up with brilliant solutions that probably push, including my own organisation, pushing us to go further and faster than we would have done without inviting them in. They've come up with a 26 really, really exciting calls to action. um, And now we're getting behind them to make sure that they are delivered. Before we get on to the calls for action, which we're very keen to talk about, what was the thing that shocked people the most, would you say, about the state of nature in the UK? It's probably different for different people in the room. Some people were real nature enthusiasts and knew quite a lot about the crisis and, and, and others just hadn't really ever thought about it before. But I think it was it was that kind of both the scale at which we're losing nature. Well, one of the statistics that, that John Lawton shared is that we've lost 38 million birds in the last 50 years. We've lost half of our hedgerows. We've only got 14% of our rivers, which are in good condition, that that kind of have the conditions to sustain life. The scale of of what we've lost and the challenge ahead was, was a big shock for people. Talk us through then the key for you, the key recommendations, call to action, and perhaps say whether there are any that were surprising or particularly it's resonant. Yeah. They came up with 26 calls to action. They're all really sensible, urgently needed, and really well considered and thought through. I guess one of their biggest calls to action was just this simple principle of we need to do no more harm and we need to start fixing the harm that has already been made. They want to see strength and legal protection for nature, but, but alongside that, they want the protections that we already have to be enforced. We actually have a lot of pretty good regulatory framework here in the UK, but it is just not being enforced. There was a really uh, clarion call that we need to put nature at the heart of all decision making. We need to give nature the seat at the table. They talked about the need for all businesses to have a director for nature. They want to see nature sort of in every decision that's made in whatever forum that might be. And also there was a lot of discussion around the, the need for um, a fair and just transition. So linked to that, they were calling for the doubling of financial support for nature-friendly farming. And they wanted to see um, a commitment from across all political parties to make sure that that happens. 
And what about expectation of the plan? Having thought about these issues and generated these solutions, what are participants expecting to see happen? They want to be at the front of this plan. Um, you know, it, we've been really clear throughout that this is this is the people's plan. This is their plan. It's both the, the you know the 103 people that were part of this citizens assembly, but also those 30,000 people and others that kind of contributed to the process along the way. They want to be leading for it. They want to be taking this into Parliament, into big business. They want to see more citizen and community action and for that to be supported both by governments and by organisations like my own. So they are working both independently and in support from RSPB, WWF and National Trust and other NGOs to drive these actions forward. What was the most surprising thing for you either about the process, Helen, or the outcomes, would you say? I think the thing that probably surprised me was the conversation around diet. So we were quite nervous that there was going to be a conversation about diet and if if diet needs to change. Obviously, people's food choices are incredibly personal and conversations can get get quite heated. But actually, they, they moved on really quickly from a conversation about if we need to change our diets to how and how that is supported in a way that ensures that there is access to healthy and sustainable food for all, recognising that we're in a cost of living crisis, that food poverty and food bank use is on the rise. They actually came up with a, a target of a 30% reduction in consumption of meat and dairy by 2030. So that was a big surprise. We thought that there would be some heated debate in that space, but we weren't sure they would come to a kind of clear recommendation. But they did, and they did so quickly and very collaboratively. You said that people were very cognizant, rightly so, of the cost of living crisis. Was there a particular way in which, in the context of those ambitions. They wanted to make sure that it was done fairly. Yeah, absolutely. There was a theme throughout the assembly process was one of fairness, that the the crisis affects everyone. That's one of the reasons we ran this process. The nature crisis affects everyone and everyone needs to have a say in how we solve it. But they were absolutely clear that that actions taken to solve the nature crisis need to take people with us. We need to ensure that people have access to nature. Equitable access to nature was a key theme that came out. People won't protect what they don't first care about and they won't care about things they haven't experienced. Helen, what should we learn from this, not just the outcomes, but the process? I think the biggest learning for me is that just by inviting people in, giving them a little bit of information, we gave them you know, quite a lot of information over four weekends, but, but in terms of the scale of the issue and the complexity of the issue, not that much really. By inviting people in, giving them the space and permission to have quality conversations about this topic, it's transformative. One of the women with the assembly talks about how this process has given her more elbows, um, how it has just, just transformed her sense of confidence and agency. There was a member of the assembly who hadn't left the house um, since the beginning of the pandemic. Being part of this has given them both the confidence to, to leave the house, but also to work with others in their community to, to drive change. We've had people talk about their mental health. There was a chap who is, is unemployed, has been really suffering with his mental health. Being part of this process has transformed his sense of purpose in life, um, really given him something to get behind. And that's just a selection of this 100 people. Imagine the ripple effect of that. Just by inviting people in, giving them a voice, it's transformative. It transforms their sense of what's possible, transforms their sense of agency. And I'd love to see it happen much more often. Well, look, Helen Meach, it sounds like an incredibly exciting process, as well as a set of exciting recommendations. Thank you so much for explaining it to us. Thanks for having me. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. 
From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. We're joined now by John Alexander, who is co-founder of the New Citizenship Project, John, hello. Hello, thank you for having me. Well, thanks for coming on. How, how much of an undertaking was this then? From inception to getting the people there for those four weekends, what was the, uh, what was the journey it took? I mean, like, like anything, you can trace it back as far as you want. But, but Helen Meach and I have been talking about the idea of how you might run a genuine kind of national conversation about the future of nature since we were colleagues at the National Trust in about 2010, maybe. So there's been plotting going on for a while. But but I guess it was a, it was really a year from the moment that we found out that David Attenborough was going to be doing the Wild Isles documentary series and that we had the opportunity to sort of put together this idea, not just of an assembly, but of a whole kind of imagination of a different way of doing democracy around it. That's quite interesting because there's a self-selecting nature to the response to the David Attenborough documentary that I'm guessing wasn't then replicated in the choosing the uh, 103 people to join in with the People's Assembly. No, uh, of course. Uh, and I think the important thing to emphasise, so we, we have this uh, framework that we've been experimenting with, really. We talk about rapid democracy. That's actually an acronym which breaks down into five phases. So we talk about input, recommend, decide, agree, perform, which obviously makes the acronym ERDAP rather than RAPID, but that wouldn't be as good, so you have to rearrange. But the, the, the idea of it is that you, you use the right selection processes and the right mechanics to do each different phase. So the input phase the, where, we, where we opened up and, tr- and asked for stories of what community organisations are doing for their local nature all over the country doesn't have to be statistically representative because you're just looking for like who's doing stuff already that we can learn from. The assembly absolutely has to be demographically representative. You, you, you need a representative of the sample of the population to get to that recommendation in a way that has democratic legitimacy of some kind. We talk about the perform phase, which is what we're in at the moment, where actually we have the, this matched fund that's supporting community organisations all over the country to do more work, to, to, to carry on what they're doing, to invent new projects. So the assembly is, and this is how I think about citizens' assemblies more broadly all over the world, the assembly is absolutely the core of the process, the moment of digestion, if you would, but it's not the whole process. Is there something inherent to this topic, the nature crisis, that makes it particularly ripe for a citizens' assembly? I think there 100% is. I mean, the, the studies all over the place that show that, that, that across demographics, across age groups, across regions of the country, local nature is something people care deeply about and are concerned about. And so in a way that, that all, isn't true of almost any other issue, there are one or two, but almost isn't true of any other issue. This is something that you can really invite pretty much anyone into a conversation about and they'll feel a stake in it. They'll feel they want to be part of it. What were you proudest of about the Assembly? I mean, look, the obvious thing to say when I'm asked what I'm proudest of is is just the, 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 the journey that the participants, the Assembly members go on and the way you see them not just in relation to nature, but also in relation to democracy, actually. The shift in the way they think about these things. They come to see they come to see democracy as something we do, not something we have done for us in Westminster, right? 
And that, for me, is the critical shift in this moment in time. The reason why I I did hesitate a little bit in answering that question is I kind of knew that would happen, right? Like, we talk about citizens' assemblies in the UK as if they're something new or radical, and they're just not. It's been proven time and time again when you do these kinds of processes that people do go on these journeys. People do see the world differently. People people have something meaningful to contribute. What is the trick in getting public buy-in to the idea of citizens' assemblies in in the same way that people are broadly comfortable with jury service, for example? Is it just doing them? I think it is, right? Like, I I think it's not talking too much about the, the, the... the highfalutin theory of this stuff. They're becoming normal in so many places. Like the city of Paris now has a standing citizens' assembly as part of its governance structure, right? Like a, a permanent assembly of 100 randomly selected citizens of Paris that have that decide the theme for 100 million euros a year of participatory budgeting. And it's just normal. And, and we, we need to get there, I think. One of my favourite ideas all around the world, and I'm going to visit the folks who have developed it, is uh, in Canada there's an organisation called Mass LBP, and they have a proposal for what they call democratic action funds. And their calculation is that, I don't know, let's call it 20 million Canadian dollars. I, I won't get that number exactly right, but it, it's, it's a big number, but in the scheme of government spending a tiny amount would create enough citizens' assemblies every year or enough enough rapid processes, enough participatory processes every year that within five years, every citizen of Canada would have been part of one of these things or would know someone who uh-huh, had. Right, yeah, and, yeah. And then you get to a place where it's just like, that changes your conception of what democracy is in, yeah. in, a, in an instant, right? And how necessary is it for the citizens' assembly to be implemented? it to be seen as effective? It's vital. I mean, off the back of the, the Citizens' Assembly on climate in France, Macron made the promise that all of the recommendations of the Assembly would go directly into law. That was a promise he didn't have the power to make because they had to go through the Parliament and most of them have got sort of limited in some way and that does risk undermining confidence in these processes. So I think, you'd, yeah, you do have to get there. I think we are in a stage though where a bit of experimentation and as long as you're open with what the power of these things is, then I think we we have to try and experiment our way forward. But this is where I think we have to be a bit more imaginative in this moment in time. We first have to pay attention to some of the best practice guidance. And and the OECD, one of the OECD's recommendations is that there should be a commitment to a public response. There shouldn't be a commitment, there doesn't need to be a commitment to adopt the recommendations, whatever they are. But there should be a commitment to a public response. In my book, my favourite case study of of, of really significant societal shift from, from a kind of consumer mode to a citizen mode that I talk about is is what happened in Taiwan over the last 10 years. And that started, the the transformation of Taiwanese government started outside of government with a a movement called GovZero, who who designed parallel websites to government websites. They're all participatory. And they, they imagined a different way of government operating. There was a sort of fracture point. Their, their ways of operating got brought into the state. And, and so I think there's a risk with this. Yes, it is important that the that, that government commissions and responds to these sorts of processes so that they have validity and meaning. And we have to start from where we are. That phrase you just used, being a citizen versus a consumer, can you talk a bit more about that? Is, is, is that being active versus being passive or is there more to it than that? You're in danger of pressing the large play button on John Alexander. <laughs> uh, <laughs> having spent 10 years of my life working in the advertising industry and then the rest trying to make amends. I could talk about this for some time. 
I see the world through the lens of story and I talk about subject, consumer and citizen as stories of the individual in society. And it is about active and passive, but it goes way beyond that. I, I think what we have today is a consumer society and indeed a consumer democracy where our agency is limited to choosing between the options that someone offers and where we're encouraged to make that choice and even conditioned to make that choice on the basis of self-interest. And I think that that structure of society, both in democracy and more broadly, is falling apart in this time. And as that happens, we're seeing the rise of the subject story. We're seeing the rise of authoritarianism, of, of the sort of strongman leader. And to my mind, and what I'm working on and the reason why we've designed things like the People's Plan for Nature and so many other things besides is because we believe that in this kind of, in this fracturing, in this kind of collapse of that consumer mode, there is also a much richer, deeper, more participatory, more dynamic form of democracy and society emerging. And we're trying to design into that rather than just stare at the false dichotomy of consumer or subject. I've got a real bee in my bonnet about focus groups. Having worked in the ad agency, were there some don'ts you learned from focus groups that you're able to take into citizens' assemblies? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the two things, it's, it's one of the oft, oft sort of levelled criticisms that it's like, this is just a focus group. It's like, it's so different mm. because fundamentally because of, the, of where the power is, right? I guess it was quite helpful starting to work with processes like assemblies to to be able to see them as so starkly different. You're saying there's a difference between the people selected via sortition and people who will come and talk about something for £30 and a slice of pizza? <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the, partly because the effort and time is put into the way these things are run, right? Like the, there is an onboarding phase. You've been randomly selected. It could have been anyone else, but it happens to be you. You have the agency to shape what this thing will, will put out. The great sort of underpinning idea of all of this work, really, this idea of people as citizens rather than consumers is like, if you trust people, if you, if you give people meaningful agency, then people tend to rise to that. If you don't give people meaningful agency, if you treat people as if they're selfish, if you if you speak to them as if you expect them to be deeply limited, then they will respond in kind. That's kind of what this is about, really. Give us, finally, what made you most cheerful about this whole process, John? I'm quite a cheerful person, as you might be able to tell. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still getting more cheerful all the time. Like there's, there's some announcements coming down the track about more organisations getting interested in this. My most cheerful thing about this, this People's Plan for Nature process in particular, is that I think it's just getting going. Like I think the momentum's building. And more broadly, what makes me most cheerful is knowing that these sorts of processes, this idea of democracy as something we do rather than something we have done for us, is taking hold all over the world, from Brazil to Portugal to... Chile to right here. Well, look, John Alexander, we should say your book is called Citizens. You're the co-founder of the New Citizenship Project. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So I'm delighted to say that we are now joined by one of uh, the participants in the People's Assembly for Nature, Graham Roberts. Thank you so much for joining us, Graham. A real pleasure. Thank you for asking me. This is really exciting. Let's just start off. How did you first hear about the People's Assembly for Nature? My first contact was actually an envelope popped through the door and I picked it up. And at first I thought more junk mail. And then I actually started to read it and I thought, wow, this is actually something really interesting. I then, I have to admit, I did lots of sort of checks to make sure it wasn't a scam. And, uh, but lo and behold, it wasn't. So I filled it in, sent it off and then sort of disappointingly didn't hear for a little while. And I thought, 
oh, I expect this has gone to lots of people. I was then contacted to say, was I still interested? There was then a phone call and then the rest is history, really. And you were already engaged in the issue of conservation from from your working life. Do you know how you were picked? Were you surprised to be picked? I really don't know. I, I did try hard with my application to sort of make it something a little bit different so that it wasn't just responding to the question. I was trying to sort of be a bit of a salesman, I suppose, to try and sort of think I perhaps could bring something to the table that perhaps, you know, just from years of experience in the game, really, that perhaps others may not have. Graham, I'm interested to know about the the range of engagement with nature and conservation within the group. So presumably, as somebody who's devoted a a lot of their life and career to this, you would have been at one end of the spectrum. Talk to us a little bit about the uh, the other people. I think that for me is is what really worked. I'm sure all of us have attended sort of thousands of meetings over a lifetime. And you're always almost talking to similar hearts and minds. And what was refreshing about this straight away, at first, I I have to admit, even to feeling a slightly bit nervous, but it very quickly, and I I think it was masterfully orchestrated, that the way they put us into groups, and I don't know how that was organised, but however it was, was very effective. There seemed to be a really good mix of people with varying experiences, some people very shy, some very full on. And that was all sort of everybody was given a fair voice. And so really from the first weekend, I felt this is actually a fair process. You know, I I think we can get some really interesting outcomes, which will be very different from my own experiences in the past. And and tell us a little bit about the change you saw in people. So perhaps people who, who haven't really given it too much thought as an issue in the past. What was their response as they were presented with evidence and information? I think some people, to be fair, were overwhelmed. There was a lot of worrying concerns for the future over the whole environmental sector, really. But there was also some interesting angles on it. On the very first day, somebody said to me, this is great to have a democratic process. And and I thought, is this guy going to be radical? He said, perhaps we need a bit of chaos to get attention. And, you know, that resonated with me for the whole of the four assemblies, that, that there was a young person really concerned about the future, feeling they didn't have a voice, and suddenly they could say things safely and not be chastised for it or criticised, and that what they said would have some merit. And I, I think that was a real skill for the, for the conference. And tell us, Graham, for the people who were not as well-informed as you, did you feel that there was the ability to ask questions, make comments, air their views? Very much so. The facilitators clearly had a very professional brief that nobody was to dominate. And particularly if it was a home subject, I think it becomes very apparent that person knows a lot more than somebody else at the table. But what they actually actively did was make people. And if and and you saw those people change as, as the conference advanced, particularly by the fourth one, it was just incredible to see everybody merge together. And people were talking with other people quite confidently. Many people were upbeat, you know, saying, my God, you know, what do I do now? I hope this isn't the end of it, because I actually feel I've been included in something that I would like to make a difference about and I had strong views about. And 
I think that was very powerful. And tell us about some of the ideas and solutions that came out of your group. Well, water is my thing. So I think we're all aware what a mess the water industry is in. And I, I didn't want to dominate it because I wanted other people to have a view. But, but it, it came fairly clearly. And in terms of the percentages, I would say over a quarter of the people there were pretty incensed. You know, what is going on with the privatised water industry? The demise of the, the water environment, the aquatic environment is in such a state. And I cannot believe that this is still being ignored. People are feeling strongly, really strongly now, what, what's good about the people plan, this is almost a definitive action plan. You know, I've spent my life with strategies and documents and promises, and they're just dust collectors. I really believe what the people, people assembly, and it's galvanised me, you know, we've set up this local river action group. We've now got 200 members. We're affiliated to 3,000 across the South Coast. And, you know, we've had a lot of media attention. But what's good is it looks as though we've got the attention of the water company. It's given me the confidence that we must all do more. This can't just be a one organisation, one government or whatever. It's a collective change of mind. And I think, for me, the People's Assembly underpinned that we're all part of the solution. You know, we're all part of the problem, but we're also part of the solution. And it can't be the onus on one person to, to sort all this out. So when you think about this, the, the process and the time you spent at this People's Assembly, when you think about this idea in the future, do you, do you think it's more useful for turning people into activists and making them passionate about an issue? Or is it something that you, you would see as having a, a useful role in shaping and generating policy ideas and solutions? I would like to think it's the latter, Jeff. I would like to think that it's, it's definitely a useful tool because we tend to be very top down on bureaucracy and, and how we deliver things. I was so constantly impressed of how well informed people were. And I don't mean that as an old, an old fogey listening to younger people. I was just so pleased that so many of the issues that certainly as a child weren't even talked about, you know, all these were upfront. That was really conclusive for me throughout the, the process. And I think it was brave. Charities have come out to lead this, looking at the supporters for who paid for the process. It's interesting that some people with big pockets are thinking, we need to think differently. You know, the status quo isn't enough anymore. You know, with nature, it's in absolute crisis. And we have to do something and we need to move quickly. I'm hoping there'll be little nuclei now from people from this, the assembly who might actually set something up, however small. You never know how things can escalate. And with the power of social media and, and the interest that the assembly has generated, you know, I, I'm looking forward to the next bit. How can we take it to another level? We have to get political buy-in. And I would think it, this could not be a better time for that. I would love that to happen. So... Uh, on the podcast, we have something, Graham, called the Jeffocracy, which is Jeff as the benign ruler. If there was one thing you'd like the government to do, whether it was related to nature or about introducing more citizens' assemblies like the uh, one you did around the People's Assembly for Nature, what would it be? I would like the government just to, to do something. 
There's so many elements from the assembly of those actions. They all have importance to various demographics of people. I really feel, for me, the priority is water. And I would love to be part of that journey for, with as many people. I've, there's hundreds of people far better informed than me, passionate about it, who are bashing their heads against a brick wall and thinking, is nobody listening? And it will be too late. If we leave this too long, we will run out, particularly in southern Britain. And we can avoid that. We've got the science, we've got the good sense, but we need to cut bureaucratic process. We need to get that at a sensible level and actually get delivery with very short timeframes. I've just been reading a water resource management plan, but most of the delivery is 2050 and 70. I'll be long dead and buried by then. That's hopeless. I want this sorted within the next five years. And that means we need a, a complete mindset change. And the assembly has given me the confidence, and I really honestly say this, it's given me the confidence that I'm not going to waste this next five years. Well, look, Graham, it's been brilliant to talk to you. I think I can reassure you that Jeff won't be second-guessing you by reading the Water Resource Management Plan himself. <laughs> no, no, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll skim it, or, or maybe you can pre-see it for me. Uh, I think you're going to leave that to yes, Graham, yes. aren't you? Graham Roberts, it's been fantastic to talk to you. You're obviously a, we're a brilliant participant in the People's Assembly for Nature. Thanks so much. Thank you, Ed. Thank you, Jeff. So are you back on the sortition bandwagon? Oh, you know what I'm going to say. I just love anything to do with this subject. I can't remember who it was. I think it was one of those sort of American retail giants of the late 19th or early 20th century said something along the lines of no one ever went bankrupt underestimating the public. And I've always hated that. And I feel that these citizens' assemblies are the opposite of that. I think John said it, you know, people will rise to the occasion. You don't treat people like idiots. You give them information and you see ingenuity. And I love the way it throws people from different backgrounds together I'm just a big fan. Is there something about the fact that it's... I've, I probably wrote about this in my book, but is there something about the fact that it speaks to the way... This is really what our public discourse and debate about things should be like, but it isn't. And therefore, you've got to create yes. a sort of hermetically sealed or sort of slightly artificial environment. It's Something's a bit broken in democracy. I don't, I don't know if it's unique to the UK, no, but I'm it, sure it, it feels that there is this disengagement, that democracy is something that happens to people and they go and choose the lesser of two or three evils every four years. That, that just feels broken yeah. and wrong. But you see, I think there's something about this. When you knock on doors and you talk to people, particularly people who don't vote, I mean, some of them say you're all a bunch of scoundrels, but quite a lot of people say, I feel I don't know enough. I don't really follow politics and I don't really know enough. Mm. And, you know, there are various lots of answers you can give to that. But, you know, let me ask a hard question, which I wrestled with a lot in writing in my book. I mean, you can't go from 103 people have said this to... Consent, can you? That doesn't constitute consent. I mean, governments could decide to do the thing that the 103 people recommended, but you couldn't say, mm. well, we've got universal consent. You could say we've got a sample of the public who thought this was a good idea. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's always like a statistical 
point at where something becomes significant but i don't i don't think that's exactly the the point i don't think we're suggesting that you switch to you know running yeah. every decision and every policy and every department like this but you know we trust 12 people it's for insight as much as endorsement that you're doing this and that idea that trust people with information and they'll make good decisions and, you know, provide insight is such an important thing. I love it. I, I know you think I'm an horrible old misanthrope, but I, I really love stuff which um, yeah, puts faith in people. As long as you don't have to be in a citizens' assembly, you love it. Oh, yeah, yeah. I would worm my way out of it somehow. Send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode. Email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Find us on Facebook or tweet at Cheerful Podcast. Whoa, ho, ho, we're in the outro, ho, ho. The ponds are very full at the moment. My wife is trying to get me to go and swim in the reservoir near us. Do you know why I don't want to do it? You might meet me. No, no I'd, I'd do it in the ponds, but I, I don't want people from our neighbourhood to see me in swimming trunks. Oh, I don't want to have to make eye contact with those people. Just don't make eye contact with them, then. What if I see somebody I see at the school gates? I, I would be actively denigrated in their minds if they saw me in swimming trunks. Oh, Jeff, I think I think you should go for it. I want to take a train to a town like 100 miles away and do it there. <laughs> okay, well, look, do report back. Now, should we thank our guests? We should. Excellent guests they were too. Uh, I'd like to thank Helen Meach, Graham Roberts and John Alexander. Emma Corsham is our audio producer and provider of uh, vending machine photographs. Rachel Barmer is our content producer, ably supported by the newlywed Joe Kenyon at Goldfish London. Congratulations to Joe and Sarah. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. James Deacon made our idents. Ed Seed composed our music and our artwork was designed by Henry Cole. He's been Ed Miliband. He's been Jeff Lloydikins. And these have been Reasons to be Cheerful. Cheerful.